This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. It is our duty to win! It is our duty to win! We must love and protect each other! We must love and protect each other! We have nothing to lose but our chains! 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 It's Women's History Month. And this episode is highlighting the stories of two women who are making history by taking on Confederate symbols head-on, as well as the surrounding institutions that continue to protect them. On March 1st, the Jefferson School of African American Heritage held an event titled Racial Justice and Black Feminism on the flyer where three big-named activists, Reverend Lennox Yearwood of the Hip Hop Caucus, Bree Newsom Bass, most notably known for removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House, and then Charlottesville's Zayana Bryant, who wrote the petition four years ago demanding the city council remove the Lee statue in Charlottesville. So race capital packed up and headed to Seaville to support Zayana Bryant, who was not only a featured speaker, but I was also geeked to attend a panel and hear how Bree Newsom Bass scaled the flagpole and snatched down the unforgettable symbol of our country's past that still haunts us today. So let's dive in to the intro of this panel where the good Reverend Yearwood honors this month by passing the mic to allow Bree Newsom Bass the first word. I want to start out by letting you get to know each person on the panel, not me. Because when I go to panels like this, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I think, oh my God, I could never do any of that. And so I want to start with the Reverend and we'll just go around the circle. And if everyone could take two or three minutes and just tell these folks how you came to be sitting up here, starting with where you started. I'll even give you the microphone. Well, actually, I'll, I'll pass the mic in, uh, in, this, in the spirit of what this is to breathe and to share to start, so uh, I think that's appropriate. Okay. Um, appreciate it. Um, I, eight years ago, would not have imagined sitting up in a, in a space like this and, and, you know, talking in this way, identifying as an activist, talking about, you know, what types of things I think are important to do. Um, in this moment. When I look back on my life though, it kind of makes sense. I think a lot of things were um, building to this moment and I really would cite as one of the greatest influences in my life um, as my own mother. Um, she was a teacher when I was growing up, she was an educator, and a lot of the work that she did was focused on um, closing what they call the achievement gap, but what I would really prefer to be referred to as the resource gap. Um, those children who are, you know, quote unquote, left behind, children from poor homes, um, children from homes where English wasn't the first language, um, children of color, these were the students who were facing the greatest amount of discrimination in the classroom. And so even though I grew up, you know, um, kind of aware just through my own family history of the history of slavery, the history of segregation, my mother's family is from South Carolina, my father's family is from North Carolina, um, my parents' generation was really the first generation in my family to geographically move far from the plantations where we had been enslaved for generations. Um, so even though I grew up with this you know, kind of sense that I had benefited from the, the struggles of, of previous generations, I was also very much aware 
that inequality was an ongoing thing, um, particularly inequality in education. But the message that I got primarily from my family was that, you know, other people had struggled so that you don't have to. So, you know, now it is on you to be the best that you can personally be, you know, go achieve, um, and then give something back. And so I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. I always knew I, I wanted to be um, in the creative arts. And so that's what I sought to pursue. I, I went um, to college at NYU. I got a degree in film and television. I made a short film that was doing really well on the festival circuit. I ended up getting a great artist residency in New York City. And so flash forward to 2012, and I'm sitting up in this very corporate space in New York City, and the Occupy uh, movement was going on at that time, around 2011, 2012. I did go out and march with Occupy, but again, if you were to ask me at that time, was I an activist, I would have said no. You know, I probably wouldn't have identified that way. The turning point for me was really 2013. Um, there were two key things that happened in the summer of 2013. One, the Supreme Court pretty much gutted the Voting Rights Act. Um, and my home state of North Carolina went to work right away, trying to pass new laws to suppress the vote. Um, and then, of course, we had the Trayvon Martin case. We had the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. And those two events happening like as they did at that same time, it felt to me like all of a sudden we were back in 1954. Or we certainly were at a point where it was very clear that there was a dedicated movement to take us back to 1954, largely in response to North Carolina going for Barack Obama in 2008, and this being the first time that that state had gone for a Democratic president since um, the Civil Rights Movement. And so that moment really caused me to question, you know, yes, I recognize that other generations had struggled, but what was I going to do in this moment to make sure that I wasn't taking certain rights for granted, that I was taking a stand to make sure that those rights existed for generations going forward. And so I got involved with the Moral Monday Movement, which was led by um, Reverend Dr. William Barber there in North Carolina, the North Carolina State Chapter of the NAACP. Went out, participated in that, got arrested. Never would have thought I would, you know, participate in a protest or any action that might carry the risk of arrest. Um, but from that point forward, I couldn't see going back. I couldn't see going back to sitting in the cubicle in the office with everything that was going on. And that became even more so the case as events continued to unfold. Um, we had, of course, the killing of Jonathan Farrell in Charlotte, North Carolina by CMPD. This was a young student from um, Florida and M University. He crashed his car there in Charlotte, went and knocked on doors looking for help. A neighbor called the police. The police showed up and shot him and killed him. Um, and then, of course, we, in the following year, 2014, we had back-to-back high-profile cases of unarmed black men being killed by the police, um, whether it was Eric Garner in New York City. I went up to Ohio to march with the Ohio Students Association in response to the case of John Crawford, who was shot and killed by police in a Walmart there when he picked up a BB gun in the store. And then, of course, we saw what happened in Ferguson, which was, um, you know, um, shocking and yet not shocking at the same time. Um, and then, of course, in 2015, we had this incident where a young white supremacist went from Columbia, South Carolina, where uh, the state had been flying the Confederate flag in its capital since 1961, where they you know, originally raised it as a statement of opposition to the 60s civil rights movement. He drove from, from that capital down to Charleston, South Carolina, 
entered the historically black church of Emanuel AME and shot and killed nine black parishioners during a prayer meeting, including the pastor of the church, who was also a state senator, who just days before being gunned down in his own church had succeeded in getting body camera legislation passed in response to the Walter Scott case, another high-profile case of an unarmed black man being shot and killed by police. So there we were in the summer of 2015 in the context of all of this that was happening. Uh, the United States flag was lowered to half staff. But the Confederate flag in South Carolina was still at the top of its pole because in the year 2000, the state had agreed to move the flag from the dome of the Capitol where it was originally raised to the lawn, but then wrote into the law several other measures to further protect the flag, including saying that the flag could not be lowered for any reason unless there was a two-thirds approval in the state house. Um, and so we had this whole visual of Clementa Pinkney, that was the pastor of Mother Emanuel, having his casket processed through the Capitol. And there's the you know, United States flag lowered, and there's the Confederate flag at the top of the pole. And the message that it sent was just so clear. Um, just even the fact that in the aftermath of all that, the conversation, both at the state level and at the national level, was not, what are the circumstances that led to the creation of a Dylan Roof, this ideology? He was not born a white supremacist, right? But instead of having that conversation, the focus was on the flag, on this piece of nylon fabric that was attached to a metal pole. And so it was in the context of all of that that I came together with a group of activists, and we devised a way to take the flag down as, a, as an act of civil disobedience to basically say that we are not waiting on the state of South Carolina to tell us that our lives matter um, and to regard us with a measure of human dignity. And we also definitely did it in the um, same spirit of civil disobedience that Martin Luther King argued through letter in a Birmingham jail, that there are times when we have to take action to create a tension that forces a community that has refused to uh, negotiate on an issue or to confront an issue to confront it, and that was basically our goal with the action. So by taking the flag down, we then forced the state of South Carolina to make a decision whether to leave the flag down or raise it back up. Now, because the state of South Carolina, they designed the flag with an internal pulley system and built this four-foot tall spoked fence around it, the only way we could get it down was for someone to scale to the top. I know, sir, I'm prepared. Seventh, ten days after the Charleston massacre, as funerals for the victims were underway, Newsom scaled the 30-foot flagpole on the state capitol grounds, equipped with a helmet and climbing gear. And with Tyson spotting her at the base of the pole, Newsom shimmied to the top and unhooked the Confederate flag. Um, and so that's how I ended up being the person who volunteered to do that. Had never scaled anything. <laughs> it was. Um... <laughs> people, you know, appreciating my courage in that. Um, but it's important for me to explain how this really was a collaboration of many people coming together. You know, yes, I was the person who scaled the poll, but it was a Greenpeace activist from New York who taught me on the method. 
Um, and then it was an Occupy activist, James Tyson, who volunteered to help me over the fence and stand guard as I climbed, and then volunteered to be arrested alongside me. And I obviously am a black woman with a history in South Carolina. We knew how powerful an image that would create to see a black woman take down the flag in South Carolina. And it was truly inspiring. As she and her comrade waited to post bail, friends and strangers were gathering in support. As you can see my glee, it was one of the most liberating and beautiful moments that I've known in all my 25 years of life, besides my daughter being born. Um, to see that flag actually come down and actually, all of the things that it represents being taken down by a strong black woman was one of the, the greatest symbols, the, uh, symbolic images that one person could ever witness. I feel, yeah. Why don't you tell us your name? Hi, I'm Carol Parker. And you came out here on your own to the detention center? I did. I came out here to show my support for Bree. that this is just, this is not her battle, that alone, that we stand with her. She did what many people have not had the courage to do and that we are proud of her, that we support her. Whatever she needs, we are here for her. And I wanted her to know that and that's why I came. It doesn't matter how you feel about whether she should or should not have done it. She did it. It's done and it needs to come down. And she has done what our governor hasn't had the courage to do, what our general assembly hasn't had the courage to do. She went up there and did what had to be done when it needed to be done. But Bree Newsom Bass was surrounded by solidarity the day of. In fact, it was strategic who was seen supporting her during the moment of action. And that's how we made the decision that it should be James, that it should be a white man who stood at the bottom. Because we wanted to demonstrate that tackling and dismantling systems of oppression cannot just be the work of the oppressed. But those people who have benefited... Those who have benefited from the oppression must also join in that process. James also played a vital role in that as I neared the top and was getting ready to unhook the flag, the police then were threatening to tase me. So there was a moment where they had tasers trained on me, and of course I'm attached to this metal pole, and they were to shoot me full of electricity, they could have electrocuted me. And I don't know if you've seen any video or photo, you might notice as I'm coming down, James is holding on to the pole, and that's because he said to them, if you electrocute her, you'll have to electrocute me too, and then they de-escalated, right? So there's, we recognized that we were doing that coming in a very long history of multiracial resistance to systems of white supremacy. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm very glad that, that I survived that, that I am here, um, still here doing the work alongside with um, other people in the struggle um, as, as this, because the work is still very much ongoing. You know, yes, we succeeded in getting a, a potent symbol of white supremacy in South Carolina taken down, but racism is still there in South Carolina, right? So it's gonna take a lot more deeper work than simply removing the symbols of white supremacy, and that's why I continue to do what I do. Focusing on that deeper work, Bree Newsom Bass made a statement on that day at the top of the poll, which was rooted in her faith. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This is what I come down to say. And on the panel this Women's History Month, Bree Newsom Bass was asked to describe how spirituality has informed her work. Yeah, um, my spirituality very much informs my actions. Um, you know, I certainly have a, a certain politic that I express, but the baseline, it is my belief that we are all children of God and that to love Christ is to love our neighbor as ourselves. I do believe that. Um, and that informs the way that I show up in the world. 
Um, it also, I remember the night before I volunteered to be arrested in that Moral Monday protest, which again, I told you I never would have imagined prior to that, doing, you know, taking an action like that. I thought about it and I realized that many of the people that I admire in their time faced down an empire and were arrested. Um, not just prominent figures of the civil rights movement and the struggle against slavery, but apostles. Um, Jesus Christ himself was um, executed by an empire because he was stirring up trouble, in trouble among the poor. Um, and so that does um, influence kind of how I, I do things. I also, when people ask me, how do I stay hopeful? People ask me, like, do you ever get discouraged? Yes, of course. Of course I get discouraged. I'm more concerned about anyone who's not worried in these times. If you, if you are not worried, then that's when I want to shake you and, and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, but I stay hopeful because I really am living proof of the faith of my ancestors. My uh, third great-grandmother, Minerva Diggs, was enslaved on a plantation in Rembrandt, South Carolina, on the eve of the Civil War. And they write about how she prayed to God every night that her children would see freedom. And I'm a direct descendant of her first child that was born into freedom. So, you know, not only are we living out the imagination of those who have tried to oppress us for centuries, but we are also standing on the faith of those who came before us. And so with that in mind, then I have to ask myself, what faith am I demonstrating in these times? about what can happen in the future, what foundation am I laying for other people to live um, in a better world because I was willing to step out on faith in this moment. And I mean, the last thing I would say to that is that faith without action, without works, is absolutely dead. Because again, how you show up in the world is really a reflection of your faith. Um, I had extreme fear when I volunteered to, to scale the flagpole in South Carolina. Um, I mean, other people have said this, but courage is really not about the absence of fear. I can attest to that. Because, because if you are without fear, you don't have a need to summon courage, right? Courage is about the belief that there is something greater than your fear. It is about staring down fear and having faith that we can make a better world. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And this is March 11, 2020 episode of Race Capital, where you just heard the story of the activist Bree Newsom Bass, who recently joined a panel in Charlottesville, Virginia, to speak about when she scaled the flagpole in South Carolina to remove the Confederate flag back in 2015. Up next, hear how our travels to Charlottesville also included celebrating a local Virginia activist, Ziana Bryant. In the spring of 2016, I did something that scared me, but something that I knew needed to be done. I wrote the petition, a letter to the editor and city council calling for the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue and the renaming of the park, formerly known as Robert E. Lee Park. I was 15. Now 19 years old, Ziana Bryant is the newest to have her portrait added and unveiled by Americans Who Tell the Truth, a portrait series by contemporary American painter Robert Shutterly. Now, if you're late to this young voice, allow me to introduce you to Miss Ziana Bryant, who at 15 years old 
wrote a petition to the City Council of Charlottesville to remove the Robert E. Lee statue. In the past four years, she's continued her racial justice advocacy, and she joined the March 1st panel. And then in complete Zai style, she opens her comments by lifting other black women in the room. Thank you for inviting me on the stage, um, as today is Black Women's Appreciation Day. So but I, I don't think that I can even sit on this stage and have this conversation without acknowledging the black women who have been leading this fight in the city. Um, because oftentimes there are uh, camera crews and people who come into Charlottesville and who never reach out to them. So I see Miss Katrina, if you could stand. Miss Katrina will never be I see my mom, I see my grandmother, if they could please stand, and my sister and my aunt. <laughs> Dr. Douglas is already standing. I know she's going to get me after, but that's okay. <laughs> I see Jatisa. Yep. I see Mayor Walker in the back. She would not do this, but. I see that when you get in the front. She's not going to stand, but he's going to And so I wanted to do that to make sure that we're calling this out into space, that black women continue to lead the fight, continue to do the grassroots organizing in this city. And so even as I'm chosen to be here to have this conversation, I know that I wouldn't be here without their work, so I'm grateful for all of them. Benzai touches on the idea that many speak about an inclusivity work, the idea of space and who gets it handed to them who has to claim it, and what that's like for the black woman. Yeah, I really appreciated the moment of solidarity at the beginning because I think oftentimes black women are told to be grateful to share space and to have certain conversations. And so, but we know that there will be no movement to even have a conversation about if black women didn't do the work that they do. Um, and so I, I tweeted earlier today that I think a lot of times me, because I'm outspoken and I, I don't care, like, um, because if I didn't say it, no one else would, um, that there are so many people who try to have this conversation about um, black women being erased, and they say, oh, well, this is creating, you know, us versus them mentality, yada, yada. Um, but we just heard a narrative of how a black woman from the civil rights movement was literally erased. Right. Literally, the mic was, like, not even given to her. And so I think that, like, this is not a theory, right? This isn't a conspiracy theory. This isn't some, some academic jargon. This is real life. So when we think about how black women are pushed to the back, black women are not cited for their own work, um, black women are called partners in things that they write, I've had this own experience myself. And so we can, if we can't call that out, then we, we're not really having a true movement. We're not really doing progressive work because, again, the people who are the most marginalized are silenced, erased, and pushed to the side. And so it's... It's unfortunate that people are not ready for that conversation. Um, 
But now that it's March, and it's March 1st, and someone said that it was Black Women Appreciation Day, so I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Last four years, you've been doing this kind of work, right? Fifteen to however you are old you are now. I'm twenty-five. Twenty-five. <laughs> she is twenty-five. She's actually calling me now. Um, in this period of time, how would you say you have changed the most? Um. So I think I've. I think. I have become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, I go to the University of Virginia. We just went viral because a black woman stood up in the Multicultural Student Center and said that our white peers need to be more cognizant of the space that they're taking up on grounds because there are very few spaces where the four or five percent of black people and probably five percent of Latinx students feel comfortable being in space. Um, and so there were white supremacists that attacked her, there were white people at our school that attacked her, there were black people at our school that attacked her. And so I think I've become more comfortable with then saying on Twitter and not being afraid of all the white supremacists that went in my DMs afterwards and said, look, it's Black History Month and what y'all not about to do is come for a black woman on period. Say it again, woman. And what y'all not about to do is come for a black woman on period. And so I also want to use my positioning as a black student at UVA to make sure that the black community in Charlottesville knows about events, knows about what's going on at the university and so that we can open those spaces up to be more inclusive. Because again, it doesn't matter if you know a local black girl from Charlottesville goes to UVA with a scholarship, whatever, if my people are still not having access to that space. If you follow Zai's work, you know she's serious about acknowledging the labor of black women as well as the past dues that are owed. The space that we take up without apology is because we want what's best for our community. And after Rev Lennox told the truth about why black orgs need to be intentionally funded, Zayana Bryant had more to say. And so for me, um, it's, I'm going to take it a step further, not just organizations, because we know that there's a whole nonprofit complex, right? There's a whole political scheme around getting 5013C, C4, 5789. So also funding the individuals that you know that are on the ground. So we know that it's Black Women Appreciation Day, cash out PayPal a black woman. How about that? Like, you know, it doesn't always have to be a tax write-off. Because we know that these people have bills to pay, they need to get food on their tables, and they have families to take care of. So I think it's really important to, to have that conversation about how we can give to each other within our own community. And I know that there are Charlottesville people in the room, and there are black women, and black people, and brown people, and indigenous people who are doing the work in our community who need to be funded. And aside from that, we can even take that a step larger and say we need reparations. I mean, like, the government owes people of color reparations. And essentially, even if there is a whole plan for reparations, black and brown people will be paying their own reparations because we pay taxes. So it's not really a handout. Um, there is there's a whole history around why black and brown people haven't been able to accumulate that wealth. So in this conversation about redistributing funds and wealth, we have to also call out the fact that it's not charity. There are structures, again. So when we, we discuss this division, it's not that we don't like each other on the stage. It's not that so-and-so doesn't like 
each other from a different ethnic background. It's the fact that there are real systems that are in place that cause that division. Um, and so I think it's important to call that out as well. It's very intentional. It's written into policy and into laws that we are dividing. It's not a, a personal banter or a personal issue that we may have back and forth. This is not pettiness. This is real real life stuff. Um, so yeah, fun the black and brown people around you, fun black women. The next question was by a black gentleman who asked what could be done by black men to better support black women? I think one, passing the mic. I feel like that's super tangible. Um, and so I think that there's like, I feel like black women don't usually, like when the mic is passed to us, we're not speaking just for black women. Usually like black women always speak for so many other people, so it's not like the message from black from black men will be lost if you pass the mic. Um, but I think passing the mic is so important because black women just don't have access to certain platforms and tables. So like, if you're at a meeting, and literally what the red did earlier, saying like, no, Bree's gonna go first, that's like, that's so tangible, but it means so much because if we didn't do that, how would we, like, who's keeping tally of the minutes of how long each person on stage talked? And we know, like, even if we look at the presidential debates, debates, and we saw Kamala and how long she got to speak, like, it's, like, it's, it's true. Black women will not get the same amount of time to speak, so passing the mic is, like, a way of trying to level the playing field a bit. Um, and aside from just passing the mic, I would say protect black women in the way that you don't have to center yourself and say like, oh, well, you know, I'm the man and I'm not gonna let a black woman get hurt, but literally saying like, hey, this black woman's feelings are not being centered here. This black woman's experience is not being centered here. Stop, stop committing violence against black women and, you know, like, put yourself on the line a little bit. I mean, I think black women put ourselves on the line all the time for everything. Um, that's not to say that black men aren't already doing this work, um, so I think that's important to call out. But I think that um, those are some tangible things that can be done. Make sure that black women are getting resources. So if you are getting a speaking engagement, you're a black male activist, and you know that black women weren't invited, or there were black women that were invited that weren't getting paid to speak, you can say, oh, well, why am I getting paid such and such thousands of dollars and so-and-so is not getting paid at all to speak? That's another way that you can use your privilege um, to make sure that the experiences and the needs of black women are being addressed. To wrap up the panel, Brie Newsom Bass was asked, what does society need to do to be better? I think that we need um, specifically anti-capitalist, anti-racist policies. Um, we, we have to address these structures and the systems of white colonialism, specifically in policy. Um, I think, and, and I, I believe that means moving towards a human rights-centered democracy, right? So we're living in a democracy, obviously this is Charlottesville, this is the home of Thomas Jefferson. Um, this was a government that was constructed around granting rights to land-owning white men, right? What we need is a democracy that is organized around a belief in you being entitled to certain rights simply by virtue of being a human being not by virtue of you having a citizenship that was granted to you by the United States that they can then take away, as they are debating right now, um, not, a, a, not even a right that is granted to you because you have negotiated a certain treaty or we have succeeded in getting certain amendments passed to a constitution. The very fact that our citizenship and humanity exists as an amendment to the constitution is a problem. 
right? So I think, like to me specifically, that looks like things like um, housing for everyone, health care for everyone, um, universal suffrage, not having your voting rights taken away by the state because you've been put in prison or for any other reason. Um, I think that there are very clear abolishing the police, <laughs> abolishing ICE. Um, I think there are, there are very clear, concrete steps that we can take. I would even argue that we already know what those concrete steps are. One of the major um, false talking points that I push back against is when folks say, oh, we just can't figure out what the solution is, and that's why things aren't moving. No, we've known what the solution was for 400 years, okay? Or, you know, maybe it's evolved a little bit. But the real issue is that there are people, there's a significant segment of the population that does not want democracy and human rights. That's the issue. So we have to be very clear about what the policies are, and then we have to build the political organization that is necessary that requires uh, reaching across barriers, that requires having the conversations, that requires um, going uh, against the divisions that the white ruling class has deliberately put in place to maintain their power and their and so it's one thing for us to talk about being divided. I mean, that's a, that's such a, a common talking point that even like the people who are in, who continue to oppress us talking, oh, we're so divided. Oh, Trump has divided us. Oh, this division, right? Um, but the reality is that those divisions exist for the specific purpose of maintaining wealth and power among a white elite. And so if we understand that, then we really understand what the resistance is. And like the, the last thing that I would say is it kind of goes back to the question that you had about what movement has succeeded or, or you know, have movements not succeeded. That's because, I mean, I would describe it more as resistance. Yes, there are many movements. There are many different movements that you can kind of pinpoint and identify. Social movement is very organic. Like I said, when we took the flag down, that was a coming together of folks who have been involved in Black Lives Matter and environmentalist movement and Occupy all coming together in a moment in this movement around taking down Confederate monuments. But what it is ultimately about is this like thousand year or more struggle against this ruling white elite that, that began by constructing this identity that is organized around the erasure of ethnicities. It began in Europe and then it spilled over into all these various continents. Um, and so it, it was built as a policy and we undo it with specific policies, but we have to name it anti-racist, anti-capitalist policy. What we need is more black women like Bree Newsom Bass, more women like Zayana Bryant. I couldn't wait and sit and chat with Zayana one-on-one to get her take on the panel and on her life as an organizer and student at University of Virginia. So my name is Zayana Bryant. I'm an organizer from Charlottesville. Um, I had the opportunity to be on a panel today at the Jefferson School. Um, which is great because today is like Black Women Appreciation Day, apparently. Um, so I'm kind of really excited about the fact that that's a thing now. But um, yeah, I was on the panel to speak about, well, my portrait was painted by Robert Shetterly. Um, and it's a part of his um, exhibition that travel, travels called Americans Who Tell the Truth. Um, and so there's like a whole line of portraits about women who are doing work and so the Jefferson School is displaying black women who he's painted who are doing different types of racial justice work or different types of uh, organizing on grassroots and national scale um, and so it's cool that my portrait actually is going to hang between Sojourner Truth's portrait and Alicia Garza's portrait um, and yeah so that's exciting um, but today I was on the panel to just speak about my work um, 
I joined the panel on the second half. Um, but before I joined, it was mainly about like everyone's story and how they came into activism. Um, excuse me. Sorry. And I think, I think it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I think one thing that I was really noting to myself during the panel was just the fact that, um, there was a reverend on the panel, a black man who decided to do basically an act of solidarity of centering black women. And when it was time for everyone to start off with their responses to the first question, he uh, made sure that Brie Newsom went first. And so it's interesting that this panel was titled about racial justice and black feminism, but we know that like when there are panels and there are discussions on stage or on camera, black women are perpetually the ones with the least amount of speaking time. And so I think that that was so powerful to start the panel off because if he hadn't done that, I can only imagine like if someone were keeping tally, how long she would have been able to speak. And I know that Brie Newsom would have taken up the space that she needs to, because like she's a black woman and she does that work. Um, But it's, it still says a lot that she has to do that work for herself. So she has to intentionally take up that space because if she doesn't, she'll be excluded. Um, And so I think, yeah, that was just really powerful for me. Um, But yeah, overall, I thought the panel was good. Um, I thought that there was a lot of experience that was brought to the table. Um, And as a young organizer, I've been in the work for a long time, but I'm always still learning. And so it's always great to meet new people who come from a different path of getting into the work, because I feel like it's it's unique for everyone. There's not really like a playbook as to like, okay, I'm starting activism. Here's how this is going to go. So I think that that was really um, fruitful for me to gain from today's panel. You started off your comments by acknowledging the other black women in the room that were from the Charlottesville area. Could you tell me a little bit about why you did that? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, honestly, I've had to fight to even have my name said. Um, And so it quickly, like when we talk about Charlottesville, it quickly was about, um, you know, black men. It was quickly about the black men activists or, you know, elected officials that we have in our community. And black women were quickly lost. And then I got, I figured it out, right? Like I started reading more news articles and I saw my name less times, but I still saw my work being referenced. And so I was like, oh, wait, no, this is what we're not going to do. Um, and so I literally started to build like a whole slogan around black women built this, like literally just calling out constantly, creating content on Instagram to call out the fact that black women are erased from activism work. Um, But then there's also the intersection of the fact that I'm a young black woman. And so I see my peers, I see people who are younger than me going viral for the work that they're doing on a national scale. We're talking about March for Our Lives. We're talking about climate justice work. Yet black women who are around the same age as me, a little older, a little younger, are still erased from that work as well, even though they remain on the front lines. Um, So I recognize the fact that not only have I been erased and I'm tired of it, so I'm going to call it out, but there are people who, because I am erased, are also erased race as well so when I think about my entire village of black women who have literally taught me molded me planted seeds so that I can do the work that I do if you erase me you're erasing the labor that they do um and so I thought it was important to 
call out the fact that when people come to Charlottesville, they have like a lineup, like a roster of like seven people they want to talk to um, that they've read about in the Washington Post or whatever. Um, And so when they come to Charlottesville, they want to find those people, but they don't want to talk to the Miss Rosias, Miss Katrinas. You know, they don't want to talk to the black women who've been on the ground for a very long time and who are looking for no type of recognition, no type of new position. They're not trying to be elected. They don't want a branding, you know, marketing team. They literally do the work because it's linked to their survival. Um, And so I thought it was important to recognize them. And like I said, today is apparently Black Women Appreciation Day. Someone made it that and I appreciate them for that. And so I was like, we cannot have this conversation or even I can't start speaking without recognizing them. There was a really great question about what you had learned over the last four years. And and part of that was making sure you say the name and paid homage to those helping uh, lift you. But what else have you learned in these few years? Yeah, I've learned that there's there's like this little, like a little secret formula that people have. So it's like, oh, you can do a little, you can be a little aggressive. You know, you can be a little angry. Um, you can be a little loud. You can be a little, you know, uh, a little authentic. But once you start to, you know, add a little bit too much of that, you know, that anger, too many teaspoons of that authenticity, then it's like, oh, you know, where we can't have you do this anymore. Um, and so even when I was like, I mean, I did this work in high school, I did this work in middle school. And so I still had to go through the whole college application season, right? I wasn't one of those student activists that got a PR firm. So no colleges were really clamoring to have me come and give me a full ride. So I still had to do that whole process of getting scholarships and being a first gen low income student. Um, And I I remember someone said to me, it was a teacher who I trust a lot, who was like, you know, you're not going to get certain things when it's time for student awards and student scholarships just because of the nature of the work that you do. Um, And so I think that's that's important, too, because we talk about activists doing the work around the resource gap and we talk about activists wanting to do the work on the ground but then you also like even as a high school student have to make those conscious decisions like yes I'm going to do this work but I'm also sacrificing um, some of the things that I would want that other students are getting Um, and so I think that that was a try like high school senior year was a trying time for me I was touring I was like basically back and forth across different cities giving talks but then it was humbling to come back to my school and people are like, oh, but you know that you basically set fire to our school division almost by being in the New York Times article. Teachers who I had admired and spoken to every single morning of my entire high school career were no longer saying good morning to me. Um, and so there's that personal factor, right? Because you can, I think it's interesting, and people say this all the time, you'll get more love from from people outside of your city, outside of your circle, than you will within your immediate, like, closeness or whatever. So I think a, a something that I really learned was the fact that there are sacrifices um, that come with doing this work. Um, it can be uncomfortable. But I think in the long run, I would not change a thing about the work that I did in high school. Um, excuse me. I think it I think it really helped me to become more fearless, to become more bold, and to become more um, purposeful and, and intentional in the work that I do. And I haven't lost who I'm doing the work for yet. And I hope that I never do. Um, But yeah, something that I learned is just really, there's a price that comes with showing up as your authentic self. And so for the people who are blue check, you know, activists who have reached that certain, that platform, um, they won't tell you that, right? Because at their point, they've, they've learned a way to package themselves in a way that doesn't really have big consequences. Um, 
most of them. So I think it's it's interesting to see that the people who are still on the ground still have to make those sacrifices. Wow, that's that's incredibly powerful. Um, so on top of all of this, you are a first year student at UVA. And I just were recently in the news. Would you mind just kind of briefly telling our listeners what happened and just your general feedback as a student? Yeah. So there was a black woman um, who is a friend um, who um, I had a class with over the summer, my summer coming into UVA. So it was great to have um, that student in class with me. Um, So, yeah. So when I saw the video, basically the student in the video said public service announcement. Excuse me. If y'all didn't know, this is the MSC. And frankly, there's just too many white people in here and this is a space for people of color so just be really cognizant of the space that you're taking up because it does make some of us pocs uncomfortable when we see too many white people in here it's only been open for four days and frankly there's the whole university for a lot of y'all to be at and there's very few spaces for us so keep that in mind thank you And so the remarks that the student made is not at all something that most black students and brown students at UVA aren't usually thinking on a daily basis because we have very limited spaces that are dedicated to us and our populations. Um, But people aren't ready for those conversations. And I think this incident was a testament to how fragile white supremacy really is, because if you know, people are freaking out with with huge platforms on Twitter saying that they're never sending their kids to UVA, you know, saying that they're not doing this, or they're not doing that based on one person's opinion. It just shows like how truth telling can really make a dent in these systems of white supremacy um, and in the ways that people perpetuate that violence against black and brown students. But um, some of the backstory to the MSC is that it's newly renovated and it's now on like the upper floors of our, basically our student union, which is Newcomb Hall. But in the past, um, the students, the brown students, the Latinx students had to fight to get a multicultural student center. Um, And it was put down in the basement. And I remember doing a panel at the beginning of fall semester. um, And I mean, events had to be rescheduled because there's a pipe that was leaking and literally during our panel there was water dripping from the ceiling and so everyone's like yeah we can't wait until we move upstairs because this is ridiculous um and so the point that many black students who really do the work and who are conscious on grounds were saying was like oh no one was mad about uh the msc when we were in the basement right like no one wanted to come when it was raining and we had this thing collecting a puddle of water like no one you know wanted to take over that space then but now that we're in a newly renovated space and it's been open for three or four days now people want to take up the space um and I think that speaks a lot to um just UVA's culture and the history of the school um but I think I think what I took away from that is the fact that People are not willing to, one, admit that reverse racism is a myth because I saw so many tweets saying, oh, this is racism. I mean, even in my own mentions, and I was like, I don't have the time or energy to do this labor of explaining the fact that reverse racism is a myth because Google is free. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's just like it's it's very on brand, right? When we think about the the Nazis marching on the lawn, uh, we, we think about Thomas Jefferson 
saying that he doesn't believe that black people can feel pain. When we think about, you know, the Cabells and the Beringers and all the eugenicists at UVA who um, influence international um, white supremacy and, you know, basically Nazis in Germany were citing these these professors and these uh, eugenicists at the university. It's all very so on brand, and I'm never surprised. Um, and I think at this point, it's not really a matter of do people know this stuff? Because again, Google is free and we've had symposium after symposium. We've had book after book written about Charlottesville. The information is out there, but it's a matter of, are you going to decide what side you want to be on? And I come from the the belief that there is no in-between. So either you're on the side of uh, injustice and inequity or you're on the side of justice and equity. And so people now really need to make a decision as to how am I going to show up in space in a way that supports other people of color, in a way that centers their experiences, in a way that passes the mic um, in a way that promotes the shifting of resources and wealth. Um, But if you're not going to do that, then essentially you're choosing, you're deliberately choosing to be on the side of um, continued injustice, inequity, um, and and white supremacy. When it hit the news about the UVA Multicultural Center and the scandal of it, I saw you tweeting And I also saw that you had to end up going private in order to protect yourselves and the mentions. And it takes me back to what you said earlier about there being consequences to speaking truth. I remember when you went private, it was such a conflict for me because it was, yes, sis, protect yourself. And it was also like, now people will not be able to experience this black woman's voice that's been doing the work for so long and Hearing your truth is so important to all of us doing the work and having access to that is important. But because of your own safety and white supremacists coming in your mentions, you had to shut it down, which in the bigger movement, if we're looking to black women to lead us, then that stops progress, right? These moments now coming from UVA are literally inhibiting progress. Yeah, and... I, I honestly went back and forth with myself about that, too, because I'm like, I use Twitter as a tool, right? My social media, even my Instagram, I'm using that not just to announce my next promotion, my next bag that I secured. I'm literally trying to engage with people around political conversations. Um, and so I'm like, wait. I'm tweeting like like I'm on the ground, like I'm like a little like reporter um, basically around the situation and giving voice to black women on grounds um, and retweeting my peers who are also saying things that need to be said. And so I'm like, wait, only the people, only the 3000 whatever people who follow me will be able to see that content. How can I make my content accessible to other people? But how is that going to damage me? And how can I take care of myself? Because I'm a full time student. There's no gap year. Um, you know, there's no there's no funding. No one's funding me. Um, so how am I going to get my work done, get my assignments done um, and still be in a good mental space? How am I going to show up at class? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly going back between that because there has been times where I've been like, I should just be private on Twitter anyway. But then I think about the fact that the white students who are viral right now, who have huge platforms because they, you know, had their viral moments, um, they 
are able to reach so many people. And I don't really think it ever crosses their mind with their 100,000 plus followers. Oh, maybe I should go private because people are attacking me today. And so there's a certain level of privilege that comes with those platforms that I wish that some of those student activists would wake up and say, hey, I really do have privilege. And it's not just the money. It's not just the firms that are representing me. But it's literally the everyday things like, do I need to go private on Twitter and why? Um, And so, yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, but I, yeah, I, um, I, I really, I really hope that, um, people start to, to really have those conversations about privilege and how that looks like on the ground and like in everyday things. Um, but yeah, I hope to stay public. I hope to continue to create content and have the, have those conversations with people who are not, you know, directly connected to me, um, because I think it's work, but I also hope that like the Rev was saying on stage, I hope that people start funding black women, funding the people who are doing this work because I do that for free. Again, I'm not funded. Um, so, you know, having those conversations, taking on that labor, um, is something that takes time and activism is a full-time job that does not pay. Thank you so much. And so what can what can we expect from you in the future? Go ahead and, and tell us what you got coming up. Um, so right now I am, you know, still doing schoolwork and stuff. Um, I don't have any really extraordinary things coming up. Um, I'm going to be traveling to some different cities to give talks in the future um i'll be at the i'll be at harvard at the end of this month i'll be at the batten school later in this month at uva so um yeah i'm just traveling trying to connect with more young people that's like my big thing i think this conversation around civic engagement and like youth activism is is really not centering young black girls um and so i want to do that work i want to tap into that um but yeah, I'm just hoping to continue to have these conversations, continue to find community and hopefully continue to uplift people who are doing the work like myself without a, who don't have a platform, who don't have access to a platform, who need it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just I'm willing to use any microphone that I have to amplify their voices. Well, we're going to continue to lift you. And in order to do that, tell the people how to follow you. OK, so you can follow me on Instagram at Zai said so that's Z-Y-S-A. I-D-S-O. Um, and my Twitter is at Ziana B at Z-Y-A-H-N-A-B. Yes, I do have a website. My website is www.zybryant.com. So that's Z-Y-B-R-Y-A-N-T.com. And besides sharing, following, liking, um, how can they hire you and pay you to support you? So if you go on my website, you can submit an inquiry for um, booking and um, there will be someone who will respond to that. We love coming to speak at, you know, organizations, schools, institutions. I teach workshops. I do keynotes. So definitely hire me to do that work. Thank you so much, Zai. Thank you so much. The same week of the panel, Ziana Bryant was on the cover of Seville Weekly for her portrait celebration. She has also made history this General Assembly session by being commended on her work by Delegate Dolores McQuinn with House Resolution 308. Finally, the work she started back when she was 15 has truly paid off because on March 8th, the General Assembly passed a bill that allows localities to remove, relocate, contextualize, cover any monument or memorial for war veterans located in public space, minus a publicly owned cemetery. For a 19-year-old, she's doing her thing. And even as a young woman, we know the work of a black woman is never done. 
That's all for this episode of Raise Capital. And are you missing our weekly shows now that we've scaled back to the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month? Worry not. Our podcast platform offers unaired content that holds accountability to these narratives here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'll catch you next time. Until then, check your privilege and do your part to correct the narrative. I swear to